Well, it's, I would say that it's a theater town. Yeah, so reviews, reviews. Yep, I think I've given two bombs. And they were so, one of them still makes me angry to think about it because it was just so bad. Lots of young artists get tied up in knots and and work themselves into a frickin' frenzy. I look back and I really don't know how I was able <laughs> to uh, survive all of that. I think it was kind of like an embarrassment of riches, to be honest. For 26 years, two rival magazines existed as the alternative weekly press in one blue-collar Canadian prairie city. This is the story of View Weekly and C Magazine, two weekly papers that ran in Edmonton between 1992 and 2018. This is a elegy and love letter to those papers, their rise, glory days, notorious rivalry, and eventual decline. I'm Andrew Paul. I'm Fonda Mithrash. I'm Paul Blinoff. And this is a tale of two weeklies. Well, it's, I would say that it's a theater town. I, I can't speak in any detail of the dance scene. And, you know, the literary scene is a little outside my compass. But there's a lot of theater for the size of place that it is. That's Liz Nichols, the longtime daily theater writer for the Edmonton Journal. She didn't work at Sea or View, but her career covering Edmonton's theater scene began before and outlasted both papers' life cycles. Her career kicked off right around the second year of Edmonton's Fringe Festival in the summer of 1983. For over 30 years, she covered local stages as her sole beat, and she was the last remaining full-time theater reviewer employed by Post Media in the country. She left the journal in 2016 and has been reviewing on her blog, twelfthnight.ca, ever since. Um, and, uh, you know, the small indies have been proliferating, and you'd have to think that the the pell-mell growth of the fringe has something to do with creating that atmosphere of, okay, you've got this great idea, just shut up and do it at the fringe uh, about the town, right? Before we get into this episode and how this all relates to our two weeklies, a bit of background on Edmonton and its art scene, in particular, its theater community. While a lot of weeklies are known for expansive music coverage, one of the unique circumstances about Edmonton is its robust theater scene, especially for a city of its size. In 2018, there were over 20 companies producing theater that received operational funding from the Edmonton Arts Council. And that doesn't include cornerstone organizations like the Citadel Theater or the Fringe Festival, which is massive in its own right, with nearly 2,000 performances at the 2019 festival alone. When both C Magazine and View Weekly started in the early 90s, the city's artists had been benefiting from the influence of the Peter Lougheed provincial government, which historically supported heritage programs. Being Alberta, it was indeed a conservative government, which also supported the arts. It can happen. The Lougheed era, which ended in 1985, has been dubbed by author Phil Fraser as Alberta's Camelot for its thriving economy, which heavily benefited the arts at the time. Between Lougheed's final years as premier and the start of the weeklies, Brian Paisley started the Edmonton International Fringe Festival, and numerous theatre companies like the Free Will Players and Shadow Theatre started cropping up, largely from classes of graduates from the University of Alberta's BFA program, one of the most sought-after conservatory theatre programs in the country. So that's the scene we're dealing in, at least where it comes to theatre. 
During the 26-year tenure of both View Weekly and C Magazine, give or take both running between 1992 to 2018, Edmonton's art scene benefited not only from the amount of coverage that was offered, but also from the rival magazine's attempts to divide space among the myriad organizations producing shows and investing in ad space. I remember one editor at C saying that we should try to give each theater company one cover per season. Now no one gets any covers at all. Anyway... On any given production cycle for either paper, there were numerous previews of theater and dance shows playing that week, artist profiles, CD and film reviews, book reviews, interviews with musicians and bands touring through, and every so often, some thoughtful writing about the creative ecology of the city. This amounted to a ton of lineage in each paper. Just the art and event listings ran up to a dozen pages in the early days, when column inches weren't strictly limited by shrinking ad revenues. I think it was kind of like an embarrassment of riches, to be honest. There was, you know, to have not only one uh, Arts and Entertainment Weekly in a city the size of Edmonton, but to have two was pretty, pretty cool. This is Darka Tarnowski, president of Bottom Line Productions. She started her publicity firm in 1993, just after C made its debut. It now serves local mainstays like Teatro La Quindicina and Brian Webb Dance Company, as well as marquee touring clients like Cirque du Soleil and Broadway Across Canada. We would try to always get both, uh, but, you know, if we could at least get a story in one for each of our clients or each of their shows, that was super important. But we found that they were really supportive of almost everything we did. At first, I thought, oh, well, there's no way I'll get anything in there because they were too sort of, you know, rock and roll and alternative. But they were interested in the in the mainstream stories as well, you know, especially if we had good photos and I remember mailing in photos, you know, because there was no electronic or digital (laughs) um, transmission of photography. It was crazy. But yes, um, they they picked up lots of stuff. Mailing in photos. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes. Always having little cardboard, eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. So they didn't get crushed in the mail. And mailing up press releases, like to send out a media release, it would take me about three days of planning because I had to get all my labels ready and my envelopes and print and print and um, fold and stuff and, and put them in postal code order because that way it was cheaper. And yeah, nowadays you can, things are pretty different. Joshua Semchuk now also works for Bottom Line Productions and had previously spent eight years in the Citadel Theatre's publicity department. He's also a graduate of that University of Alberta BFA program in theatre production. Yeah, we were totally aware of the rivalry, but we always worked really hard at the Citadel to ensure that they both got good stories. And it was... And it's something I still practice today, and I teach it to anybody who'll listen, to try to give a different story to different publications. I got... I got into a jam one year um, when John Elliott was doing a show in the in the McLab, I Am My Own Wife, and John Kirkpatrick was doing a show in the Rice um, about he was working in a restaurant. The hell was it called? Fully fully committed. And so at the time, the rev- the rivalry was pretty intense between View and C, of course, and then the rival then with the Journal and the Journal. 
so so there was a story for C where they would do a story about John and John and the roles that they were doing. And basically because John was, they were both one person shows, they were playing all of these characters and we would talk about all the characters that the, at the Johns were playing. And then the journal did the same story. <laughs> and oh my God, did I get in crap for that. But I thought, oh no, but it's not exactly the same story because you're just talking about John and John. In, the, uh, in this other story, you're doing all of the characters they're playing. No, that didn't go over very well. Running the risk of multiple stories on the exact same show, even the same aspect of a show, wasn't the worst problem they could have as arts publicists. Flash forward to 2019, and most productions are fighting for any column inches to publicize their shows in what remains of daily print papers. Although we'd always try to get a see and view story, uh, regardless of what the show was, if it was a mainstream show like the ballet or the opera, but we'd always try to find an angle that was a little bit more out there, a little bit more interesting. Maybe it was about, you know, one of the um, musicians who was playing in the pit who was also a recent McEwen grad who has a rock band on the side. You know, like there was always that sort of look looking for angles that weren't covered by other media. So it also kind of sharpened our skills a little bit as publicists to, to be looking for the right targeted kind of stories that um, the CNV readers would want to read. Perhaps because Bottom Line was a company with an awareness of not only the arts community, but also the local media landscape. They played a role in the trajectories of some of Edmonton's most storied arts institutions, and still do. The weeklies generally worked well with them and their clients. I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of artists over the years and and on so many different events. I do remember as publicists, um, if we got a cover story that was like, uh, you know, a medal of honor. So we'd, you know, get it framed and have it hanging in our office. But, um, you know, that was also always a really big thing. You know, do we have a good vertical cover art that could potentially work for Seer View? And and um, so having one of those was like a bit of a trophy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that I thought was was awesome about C and View is that they were interested in the, those local stories, and they didn't have to be about you know just the big mainstream acts. They would be about things that were more eclectic and more emerging, and um, they just had a real interest in in that. And in, and so that to us was exciting for our smaller clients and the ones that were just getting started. As both an editor at the Weeklies and a playwright, Paul Matwichuk had a unique take on the Weeklies influence over the arts. Matwichuk first worked for a number of years at VU covering film and theater, then briefly moved to Key West, Florida. He returned to Edmonton in 2007 to a job as C's arts editor. I think at a certain point they needed someone to cover local theater because the person that they had, Araxi Arslanian, had moved to Toronto and I had done some fringe plays. And so they thought, erroneously, that I knew about the local theater scene. <laughs> and that sort of became my beat. I, you know, I kind of wanted to do movies, but that's what everybody wants to do. And I sort of wound up in this kind of parallel track of being a uh, theater reviewer. Knowing what I know now, I think I was lucky, in fact, that I didn't have any relationships with anybody uh, in the city. So I didn't have, like, conflict of interest, you know. I didn't have friendships that were going to be compromised if I said bad things about their show or if I said good things about the show, whispering, oh, that, you know, that's the only reason why he likes the show. So it actually worked out pretty well 
uh, from that extent. I might, I've, it actually was maybe pretty smart to get me to, to do that beat. So I only, it was only after kind of a long period of time that I, that the whole, you know, the, the difficulties of covering local theater kind of became apparent. Not only could reviews bump or diminish overall ticket sales, their arrivals on Thursdays proved important enough to influence the weekend box office. During Governor General award-winning playwright Vern Thiessen's tenure as artistic director of Workshop West Playwrights Theatre, which ended in October 2019, he understood the importance of the timing of those reviews. I think that you can't underestimate the impact of when the papers came out and when the reviews came out. So it was just only last year that I kept on saying to people in my at Workshop West, why don't we open on Thursday nights? And we all kind of looked at each other and it was, well, we opened on Thursday nights because it was historical time to open because then you knew that you would get the Saturday review in the journal or the sun or both if you were lucky. And then the next weekend for the following push, for the final push, you'd get reviews and see or view or both. And so I was like, that doesn't exist anymore. So we're opening on Fridays now, because mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. So that impact of having that view review come out or that see review come out on Thursday could make or break your box office for the weekend, right? It was right. huge. Yeah, it's like everyone picks it up and what are what are the good shows and what are the not good totally, shows, you know? right? Or am I going to go see this music act versus going to see this piece of theater? Like, you got a really great full spectrum in a couple of pages of what was going on in the city written by people who knew the underground scene. And uh, you would never get that in a journal. Like, you'd have to flip through 10 pages. First of all, you have to find the section if it existed, right? Mm-hmm. And then the cover of some journal page would be some article about Bruce Springsteen or something. Like, it wasn't anything about anything local. So, you know, that was, that was critical. And it, could, it had a huge impact. For audiences looking to plan a weekend, if nothing else, the papers could give you some options. Even bad reviews were at least words about your show that people could read and weigh for themselves. So whether the reviews were shitty or not didn't really matter. At least people were talking about it. And, you know, often they go, wow, the show can't be that bad. I've got to go see it. Mm -hmm. Or, wow, is it really that bad? Wow, that sounds interesting. You know, so it was mediocre reviews that you were really uh, uh, worried about Mm -hmm. because there's nothing worse. Being a theater reviewer in Edmonton had its perks, like free tickets to virtually any production. But it had its challenges, too. There was a time when the weeklies weren't welcomed everywhere, and in particular, this was very apparent when it came to one of the city's most long-standing local companies, Teatro La Quindicina, which started in 1982 at the first Fringe Festival, and since has continued as an ensemble company, locally focusing their seasons on the repertoire of playwright Stuart Lemoyne at the Varscona Theatre. Matwichuk recalls one incident that came to a head when C writer Matthew Halliday reviewed one of Teatro's shows. Um, so it, this was a two-hander play written by Stuart Lemoyne, a remount of a successful, very well-reviewed, award-nominated, if not award-winning, fringe play. And they were doing it in the regular season. And Matthew wrote a, like, mixed-to-negative review of it, like the performances, but he felt that the vibe of the situation was a little creepy. I think that was like a legitimate criticism. It's presented in that very charming, you know, Stuart Lemoyne bantering back and forth kind of way. That was Matthew's take on it. And he didn't find the Lemoyne style as charming as a lot of people in Edmonton do, which is a perfectly 
fine critical stance. He was not a guy who reviewed a lot of theater, and so I think this this kind of unleashed I think uh, a lot of like. Um, Negative comment, like uh, you know, Ron Peterson, a, uh, a regular um, theatrical performer, wrote a letter to the editor. Ron Peterson is an Edmonton-born actor who's appeared on pretty much every Canadian stage, from Stratford to Second City to Soul Pepper. But what we elder millennials know him best for was a three-season stint on Mad TV. There was this whole back and forth in the letters to the editor column about this, and I guess this ultimately led to us being banned from Teatro. Uh, we were told that our reviewers were not, you know, they were not gonna give us complimentary tickets anyway. So I thought, oh, for God's sake. So I, uh, they had a new, another production going up at that time. So I, uh, so I told the reviewer uh, to just buy a ticket, go see the show, review it, and we'll reimburse you for the ticket. And I guess that made uh, the, the Teatro people especially I, th I'm, I think it was Jeff Haslam who at that point was the artistic director of the company. And if, it w if he wasn't at that point, he was certainly like a primary creative force in the company. He felt this was like, you know, unforgivable, even though it was a good review, as I recall, of the, of the play. Uh, and this we were, you know, we were officially banned. We were told by Jeff, if any of our people were in the theater, he would throw them out bodily uh, himself. And I, I toyed with the idea of reviewing their next play from like a chair, like across the street and reviewing it that way. Is it like that's, this was the best seat I could do. But I thought, oh, why continue this? You know, <laughs> let's just let it lie. Because at the time, you know, Liz Nichols was always ready to write, you know, story after story uh, about them. So, you know, I think this was, uh, this was a bit of throwing his weight around. Came to bit, you know, kind of bite him in the ass a little when he went after a local blogger in very abusive ways, and that became a whole national thing, yeah, for a while. And uh, really, you know, he had to kind of, I think, lie low for a little while and delete his social media accounts. But that felt like a little bit of karma, I guess. Matt Wichuk is referring to an incident in 2010 when Jeff Haslam lambasted a local blogger for her online review of a show he was in during The Fringe. We won't go into it here because it didn't happen in the weeklies, but we'll include a link in the show notes. Suffice it to say that the online lambast fired right back at Haslam for lashing out at a blogger who was, for all intents and purposes, quite a loyal fan and a paying subscriber to his company's season. Yeah, I mean, that was, I guess that was the most dramatic example of like a local theater company being upset with our coverage. I am much happier that I'm no longer reviewing theater. When I was at sea, I just kind of stopped doing it because I just felt like, you know, I was writing more and more plays and I felt like this is just not worth the emotional energy of making people mad at me. And I, you know, I really tried to be conscientious with how I approach theater reviewing and not be like intentionally mean or personal, but you know, having your play not get a good review sucks. Back to Joshua Semchuk. I, I always have a memory of Paul making sure that he was everywhere. He saw everything and he was always well versed in it. He would never hazard a guess. And so my attitude with those kinds of writers is if whether it's music or art or theater or film, if you see lots of it, you ha you have an expertise to be able to comment because you can then compare and you can say, well, I've seen this writer's work before and or whether or I've seen the work when it was workshopped over here at, at, at Azimuth's 
uh, cedar and now I'm seeing it as it's going to the rice or, or whatever. I mean, that's there's that's totally invaluable. They had more knowledge about it than, than I did. But because of the two of them, they had the, the, the capacity to cover volumes of stuff. Trevor Schmidt of Northern Light Theatre arrived in Edmonton around the time both weeklies began and was attracted by the scope of the theatre scene in the city. Mm, I want to say 93 or 94, maybe even 94, 95, somewhere like that. I came with a production from Toronto of the musical Grease that was running at Stage West, which was is now the Mayfield. Uh, and I arrived with that show and uh, I met Marilyn Ryan and Kate Ryan on that show. And they both said, you should stay here. This is the best place to be. And at that point, it really was the most exciting place in, in Canada for theater, for live theater. There was more theaters per capita here than anywhere in North America. And the work being done was really exciting. And Schmidt did stay. It's been 20 years since he left Toronto and he's been steadily working in theater here ever since. He became artistic director of Northern Light Theatre in 2002 and directs and designs for other companies and usually is involved in one or more shows each summer at the Fringe. I mean, I'm I'm very old, Fonda, so I don't take it as seriously any longer about the reviews, but I know that lots of young artists get tied up in knots and work themselves into a frickin' frenzy, like foaming at the mouth that someone gave them a bad review at Fringe. And I'm like, good Lord get over it like it's fringe and they're they're never going to review again and go out and handbill yeah or or turn it on them like use the bad review that sometimes is very effective so it can be it can, it can be. be when we, yeah. we found working at the magazines that like the zero and one star shows still get people going to them like they're yeah. you know people yeah. love them. yeah that's like the yeah. the rubber in car accident yeah. Kinda. <laughs> it's yeah. just like let's it's watch that this. bad let's go <laughs> yeah yeah exactly Never mind the annual Best of Edmonton Roundup issues. If you asked anyone in the theater community when the weeklies shone brightest throughout the year, it was during the Fringe. So what is the Fringe, anyway? By definition, and inspired by the granddaddy of Fringe festivals created in Edinburgh, a Fringe festival is an unjuried, uncensored celebration of independent and experimental theater. Ticket prices are much lower than mainstage theater in the regular season, and hundreds of performances occur over the festival span, which, in Edmonton, is 11 days each August. For context, the 2019 Edmonton Fringe program contained 260 shows and 1,900 performances. Because of the sheer amount of performances, its summer holiday timing, and the accessibility of tickets, audiences at the Fringe tend to go beyond the typical scope of theater subscribership. Each year, the official fringe grounds, approximately six city blocks, see upwards of 800,000 in attendance. In 2019, that attendance was higher than the long-suffering Edmonton Oilers saw in their 2018-19 home season. Reviews of fringe shows are also essential to helping audiences decide just which of the few hundred shows they should see. And this is where See and View came in. With stables of young and eager freelancers who were used to staying up late, the weeklies were able to review dozens more shows than even the dailies, who would often send writers from other departments to help cover the festival. Until its end in 2011, C Magazine had long been running a special print issue that guaranteed every Fringe show would be reviewed by the end of the first weekend of the festival. Paul Matwichuk oversaw these print issues for years. C had been doing those every show reviewed special issues before I came over there. And, you know, I don't think if those hadn't existed, I don't think I would have started them because it seemed impossible. Like at, at View, I was perfectly content to just 
you know, like do a uh, a thing on the Thursday. I guess we would review pretty much every show, but you know, like the the, the fringe would start on a Friday, and you know, so View would run its reviews usually on the next Thursday. So that gives us a lot of time to see everything. C, on the other hand, would get everything reviewed by in an issue that would come out on Monday morning, right? So you would have to get. Uh, this incredible logistical thing where you would have to get an army of people to see everything on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, write them up. You'd have to edit everything, put them all together, lay it out, and uh, and get the issue out. And I was uh, I was amazed that I was able to do it. It got harder every year because they would they would like the fringe would expand every year, and they would bring in more BYOVs, more bring your own venues, which are like non-regulation theaters, and all of those venues would usually schedule all of their plays at the same like prime time. The most you know, so you would have all these shows that would conflict with each other. You know, they all be going out at the same time, so you needed a, an even larger group of reviewers to go out and see them. As far as moving ticket sales go, The Fringe was where the weekly's reviews had the most immediate and visible impact. Since 2010, The Fringe hasn't had less than 200 productions running concurrently. All of that happens alongside street performers, outdoor beer tents, food trucks, and more. The potential audiences were there, certainly, but their attention was being pulled in multiple directions at once. For an artist, a flashy five-star review would convince total strangers to buy a ticket to your show. That was vital to your show actually making money, especially if you weren't local. But that attention was a double-edged sword, too. The reviewer for your red-nosed clown show might be someone whose only experience with clown is the movie It, yet could raise or bury your box office all at the same time. Something Matt Wichuk was certainly aware of as editor. And I think that the theater community looked a little askance at it for good reason. Because, as I say, a lot of the people writing those reviews were not experienced theater goers and their judgments could be a little, I mean, everything is subjective, but a little wonky. Like they could be impressed by things that are kind of commonplace in fringe shows or they would be, you know, kind of miss the point. That was the thing you always hope, like that they wouldn't miss the point of some artistic show or just like not get something. And uh, right, so it was, I would always be like, you know, I always tended to have a bit of a heavy editorial hand as I was uh, preparing that issue. Still, if an artist managed to land a stellar review or star rating, even an excellent quotable line or two from an otherwise disappointing review, it could help them further on down the line. Mel Priestley, longtime writer for C and eventual editor of View, started out doing fringe reviews, as did many of the budding arts writers for both papers. The fringe was a testing ground not only for theater artists, it was where emerging writers and critics were tested out, too. And you'll hear our co-producer, Paul Blinov, in the following interview with Mel Priestley. The first year I did it, I'd never written a theater review in my life. And then all of a sudden I had to go review, say, I probably six or seven shows the first time. Mm-hmm. And Paul Matwichuk was my editor at C. And he's a bit of an intimidating guy. Um, I'd never met him in person, but for a young writer to work with Paul, um, anyway, he just made me feel very intimidated <laughs> and like I knew nothing. And I was afraid. So I probably didn't sleep for like two days because I spent hilariously long writing those first reviews because mm-hmm. they had to be perfect. And I think as a result, they were a little stilted. They were probably very stilted um, because I was just, I hadn't found my voice and I was just, you know, 
very concerned about doing a good job and making sure that I was doing justice to the show and talking about it intelligently um, to the point where Paul actually told me that I could like lighten up or something like that um, <laughs> after a few in because he could tell I was obviously very tense. Um, but yeah, so it was it was wild and crazy. It was fun for sure um, to go out and and be a reviewer and to scribble notes. That's when I first started to perfect my technique of scribbling notes in the dark in a notebook that you then take home and have to decipher what the hell you wrote. Um, I have I still have all of my old theater books, um, my notebooks. So I obviously enjoyed it. Being writers at the weeklies didn't always mean you were in great physical shape, between late production nights and long weeks of covering all sorts of happenings about town. But there was a special kind of stamina required in those first days of the fringe. It was like the only a marathon you'd run all year. You know, I look back on I don't know where I got the energy. Like when I was at uh, when I was at View and when I was at uh, at Sea, especially during the summer where there was like a real crunch of you know, of festivals, of the Folk Fest, the Fringe, Blues Festival, the Jazz Festival. It's like a whole string of, of uh, Lit Fest, like uh, every weekend. For somehow, I was also putting on a one-person show <laughs> while setting up like all this coverage. And I look back and I, I really don't know how I was able <laughs> to uh, survive all of that. For both writers and artists alike, one of the most contentious points of fringe reviewing was the star rating system. Throughout the year, neither C nor View placed star ratings next to theater reviews, putting the onus on arguments and words rather than a quick numerical rating. But at the fringe, this was different. Both papers added a 0-5 to star rating system. C used half stars, View did not, which changed how the reviews landed for readers. Anything less than a four-star review wouldn't exactly bump up your sales, even if it was a glowingly written three-and-a-half. For writers, too, they proved a difficult vector to consider alongside their words. And the star rating system is a thorn in my side, particularly. I have written about it. You've written about it. It's not a perfect system. I think a lot of people hate it, but we also kind of, I guess, like it or we have to use it. It's it's difficult. Um, and assigning stars was often the hardest part of writing a review because you know that you could write whatever words about a show, but most people are just looking for stars and they want to know, is it two stars or is it five stars? And quite really, realistically, um, you could kind of help sink a show by giving it two stars, the dreaded two star review, right. I think, which faint is praise. right, faint praise, but not great. Even a three star review is considered, I, I know some people consider it like a bad review because they can't market that. Right. Um, no one runs around saying, hey, come see our three star show. Um, it's four or five stars. And I, I definitely think I was a bit harsher um, because I didn't want to just go around throwing stars at everybody because I thought that a five star review is that's that's like a perfect show. That's, you know, something that you're going to remember, not just in that festival, but like for years after. And if I think back to the handful of fringe shows that I can remember out of the hundreds that I've seen, there is still some that I do remember from those early days because they were so good. Yeah. At a five-star review, I mean, if it made me cry, you know, that's a good one. Like if it really got to my emotions or if it made me laugh hysterically for like the whole hour, then certainly. So so those things that really pull at you, if there's nudity, that always sticks out too. And I'm not saying put nudity in your show to get better reviews, although that might work depending on who's reviewing you. I saw 
clown vagina like two or three years in a row. And I was just like, okay, what's going on? Why do I keep going to the naked clown shows? But hey, you know, that's what a lot of people think of Fringe as being. And and so, you know, go see. Why not? Why not give the people what they think they want? Go see the clown vaginas. Yeah. Murray Yudis recognized the value of having two weeklies long before he became the artistic director of the second largest fringe in the world. As a longtime producer at the tiny 55-seat Azimuth Theater, Yudis took over the Edmonton Fringe in 2016, which has since seen exponential growth in the festival and in its off-season programming. Reviews. Reviews. I think that if you are going to write critically on something that you've just experienced and, and, and you want to put those words out. I much more appreciated new writers or writers from other areas um, in, the, in the, the view in the sea realm that were brought in to whether it was like to bolster up for the fringe or to uh, review during the season, just how that they approached um, the words. And it seemed like they were more open to talking about what that experience was like for them, where sometimes if I think of the, the larger ones where all of a sudden you're the sports writer and you've got to go to the fringe, you're already angry that you have to review some shows. So you may have a bit of a bend that 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 takes you in more of a wagging your finger kind of way as opposed to opening up to whatever that experience may be. So I appreciate it. Reviews, I think that there is a real balance between what's a good review and what's a bad review and how do they how do they impact your show? The festival, um, there's a huge sort of, and has been, right, from from day one when the stars arrived to where we are now of what that means, right, and and how that is. And that's where you'll find the most culmination of writers that may not know the craft of what they're going to see. Right, yeah, reviewing the fringe, you know. Yeah, totally. Because it's so, so big, you it's, know, and so, so many people come in and... Yeah. What I felt in these last few years is that the pushback that was coming about stars, one of the things that... I saw that I don't think helps anything either. There was a ton of stars given away last couple of years, mm-hmm. right? That are all of a sudden I'm going, okay, well, stars, if they're there, you can't just be going, well, I don't want anybody mad at me, so I'm going to give you five. Right, yeah. Right? Because that does no one anything. And we all know that the three and a half stars is the kiss of death, right? right. It's like, I really loved it, three and a half stars, so right. no one's coming. For some, just having the reviews happen was enough. Trevor Schmidt noticed that the reviewers didn't always have the same take on a show, so any coverage, really, was a boon. So it was great when when C and View would do every single show in the whole Fringe Festival in the first three days or whatever. Like by like, Monday, yeah. Yeah, like that was crazy. That <laughs> yeah. was crazy to me. And it was also a total crapshoot because you didn't know who you were going to get. So, you know, you get the horticulturalist from the journal and you get a 19-year-old student from uh, from View and C Magazine is somebody who you've competed with in theater for your entire career. So, it's all just a crazy crapshoot and it reached the point where it was sort of ridiculous. I remember we did a show one year. There was about five or six uh, reviews coming out in like dailies and things like that, and and we got like five stars, four stars, three stars, two stars, one star, <laughs> and so we posted all of them outside our theater with the big sign that said the critics agree. Despite the qualms some artists might have had with the weeklies, quantity over quality of coverage was still a plus. Getting your show in print, preview, review, or even just a photo meant something. It didn't always convert to ticket sales or bums in seats. But having a clipping could help with grant applications and sponsor pitches. 
Sometimes a physical record that a piece of live theater or a dance show in an ephemeral way ever existed at all was meaningful. Back to Darka Tarnowski. You know, that was sort of the way that artists were being legitimized was by how many press clippings they had, right? How many reviews, how many previews, um, how many photos in in magazines, all that type of stuff. It was super important. And so it not only helped sell and um, establish the awareness of the artists, but it did chronicle like it was their history. I remember media kits that were hard copies and they were full of, you know, reviews and clippings and, and that doesn't exist as much anymore. I think artists are relying more on creating their own content and having that on their own uh, social media channels and sharing them. I think um, when they do get something in print, it's a really big deal. And um, I always keep the hard copy clippings still. I'm, I'm that kind of a person. Um, but, you know, we always tell them to make sure they have a clipping package and PDF and with their links and all of those things. So they, they still get that kind of coverage, but it's just fewer and far between. And so it, um, it, they don't sort of have that sort of legitimacy stamp from some of that, some of those um, people out there, like, you know, the, the Liz Nichols of the world, for example, right? And there are people who are bloggers and influencers and, um, you know, have great social media followings and they can say great things about artists, but do they have as much legitimacy? Not so sure. It all depends, right? Mm-hmm. So it does does change the face of things a lot. After the internet and social media really got rolling in the early 2000s, fiscal challenges at the weekly started to become noticeable. Not only were the paper's usual 40 to 50 plus page runs steadily declining, the names and roles on their mastheads were constantly shifting around, some disappearing entirely. It was scary because you spend all this time developing these relationships and sort of assuming that you're going to be able to get, you know, Gilbert will do this story. I know he'll be all over it. And, you know, and Mel will do this one. And, you know, so so that sort of personnel change and the downsizing um, was was frightening. And it continued to, you know, up until about a year ago when when View closed its doors as well. So um, it just meant one less place that we could count on to get the story told. Um, so, and then that happened also, of course, with post media um, and radio stations doing less and less um, on air interviewing, um, less and less arts coverage on television stations. At times I was like, hmm, maybe there's no use for us publicists anymore. Publicists weren't the only ones to notice changes across the media landscape. In the final years of both C Magazine and View Weekly, those artists who grew to know the writers that regularly covered their community, on stage or otherwise, also began to see the shift. I, I'm, I miss having two papers. I miss having a relationship with the people that worked on the papers so that they understood what kind of work we've done in the past. They understand the kind of work that we're interested in doing in the future. They have uh, a sense of, of the legacy of what the company has done for 45 years, uh, what I've done in the last 20 some years here in Edmonton. They understand you as an artist or your company as an artistic institution and they 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 generally supported that now i feel like 
The last incarnation of you was filled with new people who knew nothing about anything. Next time on A Tale of Two Weeklies. By the time we arrived on the scene in the mid-2000s, the weeklies were already starting to struggle. Advertising revenues were down, page counts were shrinking, and staff positions were being cut. A significant amount of turnover was happening too, and there was a general sense of foreboding. How long could both papers keep holding on? It was a tough job, a stressful job, to try to keep those things uh, alive, essentially, right? Let's not mention any names. We'll leave names out of this. I guess I would have been fired eventually because everyone eventually got fired at sea. So sort of the level of experience and commitment and all those things was really going down. So a lot of the things that get written are not as good as they were when you were you, you had like three editorial levels to go through before it hit the page. And at that point, I knew that maybe I had done this long enough. I couldn't do it anymore. And so in a way, everybody kind of got what they deserved. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it was like the last nail in the coffin of an era that had already ended by the time that I was involved in it. Tale of Two Weeklies is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonder Mithrush, and Paul Blinov. Music is by Luke Thompson. Artwork is by Michael Nunweiler. This series was made possible with project support from the Edmonton Heritage Council. Special thanks to Edmonton Community Foundation for use of their recording studio.